0: This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Santon Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. All right, good afternoon. I think we have the last of the audience in the room, so we can get started. All right, it's my pleasure to chair this session. Um, it's one of the papers I have read and found particularly interesting. So thanks, guys. Um, our presenters today are Louis Rousseau. Uh, Louis heads up the data analytics and research team at Genry. Um, and with him is Ronald Richmond, who is currently an associate director at QED and formerly the CRO at, at AIG. Um, I found this paper particularly interesting um, on um, Two aspects. Um, number one, I found is it just really practical as a as a big beginner in all things machine learning. Um, but the first one is it looks at machine learning uh, in, in an aspect that's you know doing some, something quite traditionally actuarial and something that I think collectively we spend tens of thousands of hours a year doing as an industry, which is just a uh, an experience analysis. Um, and secondly, it, it looks at this from you know, lots of different perspectives, lots of different machine learning methodologies. Uh, so, for me, that was also just really practical in looking at the pros and cons, streaks, uh, strengths and weaknesses on different methodologies that, that you can apply to these data sets to draw really useful insights out of. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Louis.
1: Hi, everyone. Can you hear me fine? Um, I want to talk to you today about talking, trying, sorry, the paper we wrote is really a paper with two aspects. It really covers um, a, new, a new way to look at um, runoff triangles and combining that into your traditional actuarial modeling, to, uh, into, in, sort of into your GLM. Um, uh, and we, we explore that and show you how that might be useful. And the second part of it is actually using uh, machine learning uh, techniques then to explore that space and to really see how, how we can model even even better, uh, get even better, better results on that. So it's a little bit of a two-fold paper. Um, so I'm gonna start with the first part, just explain to you sort of what we've done in terms of runoff triangles. Now I know this is after lunch, it's the last day of the conference, we're a little bit tired of formulas, so I tried to make it, uh, a little bit less actuarial, so I have my formulas on the one side, but I also have the the little people, um, and 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 it goes a treat if you present this to an underwriter or a clinician, so they actually follow you. So so I, I kept it in. Um, um, so experience analysis, is of course, a key part of what we need to do as actuaries, um, both uh, both. Uh, 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 both in life and non-life. We're using the life example here, but it's obviously applicable to non-life as well. Um, So what we usually try to do is we try to count the deaths and we try to count the exposure, calculate the exposure, and we take a rate of those two um, dividing deaths by exposure, and that's our traditional approach. Sometimes the exposure could also be the expected expected number of claims, and and that's also a way to to phrase the same same kind of things, the MX becomes a mortality ratio then. But there's a problem. Um, we know that our our claims aren't reported on time. Policyholders take a long time to to get the claims to us, and if you're a reinsurer like like we are, uh, uh, we get the delay that the policyholders submit to to the insurer, and then we also have another day from the insurer submitting it to us. So webinar is a significant part of what we look at when we do experience analysis. Of course, there's, there's traditional approaches of just saying, well, let's look at last year's experience rather than the latest experience, but that does mean that your, your, your information is behind. So we're quite keen to be up to date, so we also always need to allow for IBNR. So the traditional approach is to um, work out an IBNR, some actual estimate, um, and adding it to the claims, right? This is what we all do, um, uh, and often do, uh, and that's represented by a theta plus an IBNR divided by the exposure, as you see there. Um, how do we estimate these webinars? It's actually quite uh, traditional, uh, very very um, traditional actuarial uh, uh, modeling using runoff triangles, right? Um, there's lots of different kind of tri- uh, runoff triangle approaches. There's the chain ladder, but there's also the Bonnet-Ferguson, which allows for sort of loss ratio estimates and the like. And then there's also a fancier Cape Cod method, which is kind of what we're going to be, it's uh, uh, similar to what we, we're going to do. And um, the key assumption is that we're actually taking back the, the, the ratios, uh, year-on-year ratios from past years and projecting them forward. Sorry, the slide got a little bit mangled there. But basically, we're looking at the past ratios of clan development and, and projecting them forward. Um, in 2007, uh, Paul Lewis and myself uh, wrote a paper as well to, to try something new in, in the space. Um, it was presented at a 2007 convention where we said, well, actually it's quite difficult to figure out how to add the IBINR, especially if you're looking at Lots of different cells of experience, and especially if you're looking at trends over time, it becomes quite messy to, to understand how, how to add IBNR because your IBNR actually influences your trends, and you can also influence the experience in different cells in your analysis um, if you add the IBINR in the wrong places, if you will. So what we proposed in that paper was to say, let's reduce the exposure rather than increasing the claims. Um, So for later geriat, you simply um, apply a factor, which you again estimate by chain ladder type methods, and and you reduce the exposure rather than adjusting the claims. That makes it a lot simpler to do your modeling, and and, and later on it emerged that it was quite convenient to actually use this approach for GLM modeling as well, because then your exposure is adjusted. You don't end up with fractional claims in a binomial or a Poisson model, which often um, messes things up a bit so what is the point of uh, what what once we have that sort of experience analysis where we have these raw a- mxs what what do we try to do it we try to model it right so the point is really trying to model the mortality uh, to use for a pricing basis or reserving basis or or any uh, uh, you know to make sense of it traditionally actuaries have kind of modeled it um, your mu as a as a function of x now x here in bold, so x these days doesn 't just represent age it 's the age the gender the income education all those other factors that we that we have inside our, our traditional life bases and, and and many more under the more modern bases um, and traditionally actually use the percentage of table that 's typically how we all price right what percentage of s eighty five ninety lights are you going to use so that 's a traditional approach um, some of the the hardcore actuaries used Gompers make him to fit the model, so I never tried that, so it's a bit hardcore for me. But the modern approach is really the GLM, as you can see there, the, sort of the, the third point there. Uh, it's really trying to f- model, um, in this case this is the Poisson formulation, really trying to model uh, the mortality or the hazard rate as a, as a function of uh, exponent of a linear f- function of all the, uh, 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 all the factors and all the variables in your model. Um, and you can actually rewrite that in terms of deaths. You'll see now. What, you'll see later why I did that. But traditionally, when you model it in something like R, you would actually rewrite. You try. You'll try to model the deaths, and you'll do it as a function, a linear function of the the exponents plus a log of the exposure or the expected, for that matter. So that's how you traditionally write it out. But you'll see now why we're writing it out in that way. Um, so this, the story of how this paper sort of came together was um, me and uh, 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 Ron met up, we, we were presented in the same session at the colloquium uh, that was held earlier this year in Cape Town. And we started talking as you do, as, uh, uh, as actuaries do, you know, start talking about how IBNR works, right? You know, it's a nice coffee conversation, that. And, we, and, and Ron reminded me that, um, that, uh, uh, that uh, IBNR can be expressed as a GLM. Right, so when you look at the traditional IBNR, I'm sorry, the formula's got messed up there as well. Um, the, the, the um, you can actually, uh, if you look at this formula, you can actually recreate, um, uh, you can say the, the deaths in each of these cells can be modeled as a linear function of the time, the, the time period, oh sorry, the, the calendar year and of the delay period. So this is, this is exactly the same, very similar to the formulation we saw earlier, where you actually model it like that, and you can literally uh, use a Poisson GLM, and it produces exactly the result, same results as a, as a basic chain ladder method would, um, and it makes your chain ladders a lot easier to do as well. If, if, no, if you learn nothing else about in the session, uh, if you learn this, you'll save a lot of time doing your runoff triangles. Um, so this looks very similar to the, to, the, to the GLM formulation, and that's what really made us think about um, this, the concept here, but I'm going to hand over to to um, Brian just to speak a bit about about GLMs.
2: Thanks, Louis. So I, I think what's really interesting is um, using GLMs has got, uh, using GLMs for IBNR reserving has got quite a long history in the short-term actuarial world. Um, And I think exactly as Louis said, what you do is you parameterize your GLM so that some of your parameters relate to each loss period, and some of your parameters relate to each development period. And what was shown um, a couple of years ago, actually it's, it's already a result that's more than 20 years old, is that if you fit a Poisson GLM to um, an incremental claims triangle, you exactly reproduce the chain ladder method. Um, and what this insight that um, they had all those years ago led to is the famous bootstrapping technique for reserve uncertainty that's used by short-term actuaries. Um, and what you basically do is you fit the GLM and then work out your uncertainties of the model coefficients, and that allows you to work out what your aggregate uncertainty of the RBNR reserves that, you, um, that you're that raising is. So as a bridge to the model that we'll be discussing for the rest of the presentation, it's quite interesting to consider what happens if you include exposure in a Poisson GLM that you're using for reserving. And what what actually happens is you derive a method that's known in the GR world as the incremental loss ratio method which is also due to Thomas Muck. So how does that work? Basically we've got our same runoff triangle over here and you've got your loss period running down there and your development period running across. And you're trying to model the claims runoff in each one of these cells. But what we've done is we've added exposure over there as an offset. Sorry again that these formulae are not showing up so well. But basically what happens when you add exposure is you no longer have the chain ladder method, but you have um, the incremental loss ratio method. And what the method effectively allows you to derive is a loss ratio for each column, And then to derive your total RBNR, you just add the columns up. And that's a really useful non-life method, which we'll develop a little bit more in this presentation. Thanks,
1: Ryan. Um,
2: So the central idea
1: of this paper is actually a mashup. So um, we try to mash up this IBNR formulation of 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 of, a, of, a, of a, this GLM formulation of our IBNR runoff triangle, as well as the traditional mortality GLM mortality model that we 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 all sort of using at the moment. Um, so what you get is essentially uh, the the IBNR components, um, the traditional mortality model components, and still your exposure and you model the deaths in the same way. But now you're not model total deaths for a particular calendar year or cell. You model the the deaths in each cell of the runoff triangle, effectively, um, together with all the data around that. So this this if you just did this, this wouldn't that be that interesting because you would just simply be incorporating your IBNR directly into your GLM. But the magic now happens is because now you can start interacting these variables. Now you can start modeling inside your mortality model, not only the IBNR but also how the IBNR or the delay interacts with other variables in the model. So now you can say, how is my runoff different by age? How is my runoff different by gender? How is my runoff different for different policy durations? Um, And and we've discovered a few few, um, sort of relationships there that we weren't aware of um, as actuaries because we've always done this very simple, I would almost call it back of the envelope, runoff triangle on the one side, and then went... um, very complicated with, with modeling a GLA model on the mortality, um, and bringing in the IBNR actually helps you a lot in your uh, in your in your accuracy of your model, which also I'll show later. So how this is how do, how do you actually do it? Basically, um, you tabulate all your data, um, in, uh, as indicated there, by uh, calendar and de- uh, delay. You calculate exposure for each of these delays. You divide the claims in each of those cells, divided by the exposure in those cells. Um, obviously, this is not just for a, a single runoff triangle. This is across all the X, so all the ages, genders, um, portfolios, all the other variables in your model. You should essentially have a lot of uh, runoff triangle type data there. Uh, and then you use a GLM to model that. So at the end of the day, you produce a mu or a mortality model that effectively predicts the number, the mortality rate in each of those cells. So you don't have a single mortality rate for, for a particular period. You have a different mortality rate for each delay period. Um, and obviously the mortality rate would drop down because you, know, you expect fewer and fewer claims to be reported late. Um, so what you then do if you want to actually just generate a mortality rate from this is to sum up the the mu x's in a particular row gives you the total mortality rate that we used to as actuaries. Um, um, But but you also have the information of the separate ones. If you want to estimate IBNR, you simply go and sum up the mortality rates from the future periods, and multiply by the relevant exposure, and you get an IBNR estimate as well from one single model. So this approach is a little bit more complicated than a traditional A versus E model. Um, It's a bit more complicated than a traditional GLM as well, But um, there's significant benefits. We we see a lot of benefits of this. It actually simplifies the approach in a way because you actually only have one model. Because we kind of ignore the Abinor-Runoff triangle model as a model, usually. But actually, it's an important part of your modeling. And now you've kind of combined it into one model, which which really simplifies your life. because. Now, impact of modeling choices inside the runoff triangle can actually directly affect your your GLM and your results, so you can actually see immediately, if I change the way my delay runoff works, how does that impact my final results? Um, You can also do prediction uncertainty, incorporating both uncertainty in the runoff as well as uncertainty um, from the other parameters in the model, so now you have confidence intervals including the effect of the runoff triangle, or the runoff. Um, as I mentioned before, you can now start interacting your delay with all sorts of other things, and I'll show you some, some results on that later. Um, so you can now see how, does, how, do, how do these delay factors change for different factors in my, in my, in my portfolio. Um, the Ebner method also has a nice advantage that it allows you to be, um, more, uh, you get better credibility estimates when you when you're using the Ebner method, which I talked about earlier. And this method inherits that sort of that those aspects from from uh, from the Ebner method, if you will. And that is really around um, that you get. Uh, uh, better credibility weighting because you're not artificially increasing the number of claims. Many people set credibility factors with reference to the number of claims in the experience, and they're actually over-inflating their credibility factors because um, the IBNR is not really true claims, but they're increasing the number of claims in the experience, so it's a, it's a way to actually make sure that you don't artificially increase, increase the number of claims and thereby increasing your, your credibility. Um, obviously, you get estimates for mortality. And you get estimates for IBNR all in one model. so it's quite quite a handy method. So we're going to apply it in a second, but I just wanted to say, you know what the second part of the paper is all about is really trying all of this, these new techniques, this new structure of of, of modeling mortality, as well as applying machine learning techniques to that. So not only are we going to we're going to try the, uh, to to model this in a traditional GLM approach, um we're going to do the traditional GLM. Separate IBNR, separate GLM, you know, uh, keeping it separate for comparison purposes. What we're going to do as well is then um, use the GLM to combine all these factors and really start looking at these interactions and see what the benefit is of this new approach. I can show you the, literally the improvement in prediction accuracy due to, we, uh, due to us combining IBNR into the model. Um, we're also going to try a lasso regression. That's also going to help for, and gradient boosted trees and deep learning. So I'll address the the other three, the the last three separately in separate slides. Just wanted to say something about the GLMs, um, about the working with the GLMs. In terms of the time it took us to to fit all these models to this data set, um, the GLMs actually took the longest because they they're the most complicated to, to fit, because you had to kind of pick the parameters and figure out which ones are important, and if you did this, something broke, and it, was, it took me the, the most time of all the, all the models to actually fit um, in this case. So, um, and later when you see the results, you, you'd see that time wasn't well spent, in my, in my, in my opinion. Okay. The Sorry there. ODP. <laughs> Sorry, um, the, um, we, the, the GLMs we fit were, were uh, 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 fairly simplistic. Um, I should point out that we actually fitted a, a one GLM on all the experience, and you'll see when you look at the experience that there were multiple different products, multiple f- different countries, and multiple different insurers' experience in this data set. So we actually fitted a, a quite a few of them in there. We used f- a fair number of categorical variables, but we also used um, splines to to model the mortality. So rather than um, uh, having categorical age bands or something like that, we wanted to make sure our results are smooth. So we used splines to to to, to represent the age. Um, but we also modeled relative to an expected basis. So we didn't just uh, 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 model from scratch. We included a basic mortality table in in our expected, and we modeled everything relative to that. So we should have started with a reasonable good good fit because we used Reasonable uh, approximation for mortality in each of those countries, but then we adjusted those using our model. Um, and that's also another way to really make sure that your models start off with, uh, you know, with the basic information already. Um, we also had calendar and underwriting year effects um, modelled with splines, um, and then we had a bunch of uh, categorical variables. Um, variable selection for the GLMs was sort of, uh, how can I say, uh, inspired by what the lasso regression did. I'll explain the lasso regression in the next slide. Um, and we modeled with expected claims. I think I've covered everything here. So lasso regression is quite a, um, I know some people say lasso, some people say lasso, so I've I've, I've stuck on lasso. So... Um, um, Lasso regression is quite an interesting uh, um, technique that I find quite useful in the context of um, chief actuaries wanting to have a GLM that they can understand versus applying some of the more modern machine learning techniques. I f- it feels to me more like a crossover technique between, between the machine learning world and the, and the, and the, the traditional statistical model world. Um, and what it does is basically usually you, f- you fit with the sort of least square estimator, which is on the left here. Uh, you try to minimise that um, for for a GLM. But what, what this what this methodology does? It adds this term to the to the error function of the model, and and that lambda then controls. It's a it's a, a, a penalty for uh, a, a, for larger coefficients and and more coefficients. So the larger the values of the coefficients are, um, the higher the error in the model. Okay. You, you kind of see that. So, the, so as you increase the lambda, your model will actually automatically decrease the values of all the, all the coefficients and, and at some point uh, dropping some of those coefficients. Hence the lasso. It kind of shrinks your... It puts a loop around your, uh, around the absolute value of your coefficients and shrinks them down. And that's a way to a um, in, uh, sort of derive variable selection because using that lambda, you can play with that lambda and see which is the most important variables and the least, least important variables, as well as regularization to make sure your model doesn't overfit. So that's one of the techniques we tried and I found quite useful. Um, the grade and boosted trees are, is another technique we tried. Um, I, I found it quite useful in the past and, and it t- turned out to be pretty good in this case as well. Um, it's a very successful technique. Um, it's a, it's a boosting-based technique, so gradient and boosted trees are basically made up of two aspects. Um, it's decision trees. So what you see on the bottom left is a decision tree for a particular model, and basically a decision tree is derived from the data. So what you do is you have a particular outcome you want to model, and you use a decision tree to split the data such that you get more of the one side of the outcome in on in one leaf and, and, less of, and, and more of the other side of the outcome in the other, on the other leaf. So, for example, if you model mortality, you might split on age 40, Right, and you'll say people under 40 go to the left and people over 40 go to the right. And you would already see a different mortality rate on each side of of that split. And then you would continue that process by splitting each of those leaves then independently until you have small enough uh, data or a good enough fit. So that's the decision tree aspect of um, gradient-boosted trees. The second aspect is gradient-boosted trees is actually fitting many decision trees to the same data. And how it does that is actually by fitting... it'll fit to start with the basic decision tree, and then it'll fit another decision tree on the errors of the existing decision tree. And it'll continue fitting more and more decision trees to the data um, in a way to minimize the errors of the combined model, okay? However, if it did that um, recklessly, you would obviously overfit your data completely. So what it does, it says, I'm gonna fit to the errors, but I'm only gonna allow each particular tree to have a limited weight. So in essence, it's trying to reduce the total errors, but it's effectively using a kind of gradient descent um, to optimize or minimize the error by slowly stepping closer and closer to zero error using uh, 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 underweighted decision trees. So that's decision trees in one slide, Uh, gradient boosted trees in one slide. I'm going to hand over to um, Ronald now, who's the expert on deep learning, so he's going to tell you about, about deep learning.
2: So for our last exhibit in the Zoo of Machine Learning, we're going to talk a little bit about deep learning. Um, And what we have on the right-hand part of the slide is a a typical example of a deep neural network. Um, Maybe I should just explain how these diagrams work. Um, Each circle represents a variable. Um, These are the input variables, and that's the output variable. And these intermediate layers also represent variables, but these are variables that the network learns for itself. And basically, the principle of deep learning is to automatically construct a hierarchy of learned variables Um, which the model then uses as um, explanatory variables to to model your outcome. Um, So basically what will happen is you'll put in all your variables over here, say age and gender, this next layer will come up with a whole bunch of combinations as will that layer, and then your your output of the network will depend on what the network has learned. That's why it's called a deep neural network because of this concept of um, several layers stacked on top of each other. Um, This is a typical example of a deep um, neural network Um, what you have in the rest of the machine learning literature are various specialized types of neural networks, um, which we're not going to go into too much detail about. But basically the principle with all of these types of models is you provide the raw data to the model. You don't really have to do much feature engineering. Um, You just provide the raw data to the model and it figures out exactly what it should be learning and how to learn it. So as a description of um, the model that we used in this um, paper, um, the model was really based on a multi-population mortality forecasting model, um, which was the paper that Louis mentioned that was presented at the IAA colloquium. So this is the the diagram of um, the deep neural network that we fit um, with one or two uh, differences. So this is a slightly simplified version. So what the network consists of are embedding layers, Um, for your categorical variables such as country or gender. And embedding layers are a neural network technique that are specialised for working with categorical data. So basically you feed in um, which particular category you're talking about, say for example male or female, and what the neural network does is almost a basis expansion. um, For each category that you feed in, the network learns a dense numerical vector, which is then used in the rest of the modeling. Um, The rest of the network consisted of five layers of um, neurons, like we saw in the previous slide. Um, And in each layer, you had 128 neurons. And then something that's um, of interest, if you ever want to try to fit a neural network model, these networks can almost memorize your training data and reproduce your training data exactly. So you have to regularize them. So what Louis was talking about in the Lassus slide, this is an example in the machine learning literature of um, one of the ways of regularizing a network. Other things that you can do um, and that are often used in the deep neural network literature is something called dropout, where at each run of the model, you basically set some of these intermediate neurons to zero. And that's a very effective way of regularizing the network, or in other words, um, making sure that the network will, ge- will generalize well beyond the training data that you're showing it. Um, one interesting thing that we did over here is that all of the variables representing um, a time dimension, so the year of loss, the underwriting year, the reporting year, and the calendar year of the claim, was, were treated in a separate network before they were fed into the main neural network, and all of the other variables were treated as categorical inputs. So that's um, the the machine learning models that we fit. Um, We'll now, for the rest of the presentation, discuss um, the actual application. So a certain reinsurer, who we're very grateful to, provided us with a very interesting data set. Um, And this data set covered two different countries, being South Africa and the UK. And it also covered two different products, um, mortality and critical illness. Um, And you can see some descriptions over here of what um, covariates we had. Some interesting ones um, were smoker status, whether or not it was a joint life policy, um, if the, the, the rates had been loaded, as well as things such as um, age of the policyholder um, and the years in which the claims happened. Um, what we did is we trained models from all of the above classes of machine learning algorithms on this dataset, um, and we trained these on the assumption of a Poisson loss function, and that's a standard way of training a GLM to model mortality data. Um, so, what you basically say is that your mortality rate multiplied through by your exposure is distributed as a Poisson variable, um, and that's quite a robust way of modeling mortality. We also measured the actual versus expected performance of each of the models. Um, and what we did is we fit two traditional models. Um, in the traditional models, we estimated IBNR separately, added that to the claims experience, and then we estimated mortality. And then we fit four different combined models. Um, And by the combined model, we're referring to what Louis was describing, which is where you model RBNR and claims experience all in one shot. Um, And what we did is compared the performance of these models on unseen data. So what this slide um, explains is how we split our data into the various training, validation, and test sets. So this is something that's very fundamental in machine learning, which is that you always track the predictive accuracy of the models that you're building. And this is perhaps less emphasized in traditional actuarial practice. So the way we we did that is Our training set consisted of relatively older data. We had a validation set, um, which was for claims reported in 2010. And what that was used for was for tuning the models, because there's a lot of different parameters that you need to set, such as how um, big your network should be, or what the coefficient in your lasso regression should be. And then we tested the performance on data that the models hadn't seen. Um, And I think what's what's worth emphasizing is that the test set was both out of sample, and out of time, so we had to produce forecasts of what the mortality rates would look like in those years. What we're showing now um, in these next two slides is what was the performance of the models. Um, This shows the test set performance, and this is probably a good indicator of how well your model would perform. And again, we're showing two metrics, the Poisson deviance, um, I'm not going to go into too much detail around how you derive your Poisson deviance, but basically the lower the number, the closer your GLM fits the data, and then your actual versus predicted, um, which is a metric that your AVE metric that most actuaries should be familiar with. Um, and you can see that we've got the various different models. These are the two Um, traditional models, and these are the four combined models. And basically what you can see is that um, the combined model dramatically outperforms the um, traditional models. So just adding on um, IBNR, whether it's calculated using chain ladder, whether it's calculated using the EBNAR approach that Louis mentioned, um, neither of those perform as well as the combined models. And then the second conclusion is is that... um, Your machine learning models, within the machine learning models, your lasso performs better than your GLM, your gradient-boosted tree model performs better than the lasso, and the best performing model as measured by the Poisson deviance is the deep learning model. So that's quite quite an interesting finding, especially on tabular data because what's often found in machine learning competitions is that gradient-boosted trees can outperform deep learning, but it wasn't the case here. Um, And then probably one of the key insights that we had when we were performing this modeling is you'll see there seems to be a trade-off of goodness of fit as measured by the Poisson deviance versus your actual versus predicted metric. And that was something quite puzzling to us, and it's something that we go into quite a bit more detail in the next slides. This is the performance of predicting your IBNR claims. So um, if there's any actuaries responsible for reserving, again, this might be quite interesting. We found exactly the same thing. Your traditional models underperformed versus your um, integrated models, and um, We had a very similar ranking except your lasso outperformed your gradient boosted tree and all of the machine learning models were outperformed by deep learning. So that's that's again quite an interesting um, observation. So getting back to the point that there seems to be a trade-off between goodness of fit and um, the Poisson deviance, which is the Poisson deviance, and your actual versus expected metric, we decided to to look into this in a little bit more detail. So the AVE metric is traditionally what you'll consider when you're doing experience analysis. And what we wanted to show in this graph is is quite an interesting thing. Let's say you had experience generated by the SA8590 table, but instead of, Working out your expected on the basis of the SA8590 table, you worked out the weighted average mortality that's implied by your exposure. And here's just a simple graph of very simple uh, parabola defining your exposure. If you fit this mortality table, your actual versus expected metric would come out as one. So in other words, perfect fit. But you can see that the predicted mortality for each life at each age would be horrendous. So what that means is that the actual versus expected metric is actually not measuring goodness of fit, it's measuring bias. And that's quite interesting because every time we do an AVE, we're not making sure that the shape of the mortality table fits, but you're just saying, is the level of the mortality table in aggregate commensurate with your experience? Um, On the other hand, there's a very interesting paper from Mario Woutrich, who shows that many popular machine learning models, including gradient boosted trees, suffer from biased predictions. So in other words, what happens is they produce very good predictions at an individual model point or an individual policy level, but they won't necessarily reproduce the aggregate mortality rate of the um, portfolio. So what we did is we applied another deep learning model with the bias correction that's suggested by Mario Woodrich, And what we found is that the Poisson deviance landed up being slightly worse than the Lasso model. So in other words, it would be worse than the machine learning models. But your actual versus expected on the test set was 99.7%. So almost exactly on. And that would be quite a good compromise if you were doing this modeling in practice between having very good good fit for each individual data point, but also reproducing the the, um, portfolio mortality. And that's quite an interesting lesson for any actuaries who want to apply these methods in practice. Make sure that you're applying some sort of bias correction before you do. And now I'll hand back to Louis to to show some results.
1: Thanks. Um, Another aspect that was um, evident from some of these machine learning techniques was um, Uh, just to add to the previous slide that uh, Ron was discussing was the fact that you're extrapolating some of these models, and some of these models behave differently uh, when they're extrapolated. Now, a GLM, when you're fitting a GLM, you can control the extrapolation because the function that you use inside the GLM might be a linear function of calendar year, which would imply that your your, your, your mortality won't behave too differently in future calendar years. It will just follow the same linear trend. But uh, something like the gradient boosted tree, because it buckets data, it behaves differently. It um, When it extrapolates, it just uses the last band of calendar year, so it will just continue Projecting forward 2010 or the last period in the experience, and assume that level of experience will continue going forward. So it won't extrapolate. So it's another thing to to watch out for when you're testing these machine learning t- techniques on out of sample data, is that they extrapolate differently, and, and that was also a factor at at, uh, at play in the in the in the when we when we compared the the fits on out of sample data if we had comp- uh, compared the fits on in sample data i'm sure some of the machine learning techniques would have even done better both on both on uh, on, on on a versus e as well as the 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 the, the poisson deviance anyway you're all probably wondering about the slide on, on the screen. Um, uh, this is the, uh, the impo- a variable importance plot from the gradient boosted tree, just to give you a sense of kind of how the variables worked. And funnily enough, delay was the most important variable in the model. This is a, oh, sorry, maybe I should just explain the plot. The plot basically measures how much a variable is used in all the different trees inside the model. So remember, the gradient boosted tree might have a thousand trees in them, and each of those trees have splits, and different variables are used at each splits. And this is effectively measuring how much it's used in each tree. Um, actually, it also measures the kind of the gain by using the variable in each tree. So delay is obviously very important because um, our prior our prior assumptions did not have any um, delay factors in them. So uh, basically, the model quickly corrected for 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 claims runoff that it saw in the data. So um, and and that's that's why it's quite important. So it's not really surprising that it's up there, but it's quite good to see that the model picked it up and immediately adjusted for late reported claims. The second one is age. Now, you should recall that we added um, uh, the expected basis already in the model. So what this is telling us is age was not perfectly modeled by the expected basis. So we used a standard mortality table, um, both for the UK and South Africa, to to model this. And the shapes of those tables didn't appear appropriate for this data. So the the model actually, the gradient booster tree still adjusted heavily by age, for example. And then there's various other other variables in that plot. A lot of the as you go down the list, it looks less important, but the, you know, as you add up all these nooks and crannies that the model is exploring, those are the things that are actually reducing the error in the model. And this is the stuff that's interesting and new that we should explore because this gives us an, a sense of where our pr- current pricing curves. Even if we don't use the gradient booster tree, these kind of things that pop up here is useful to go and see what went on there. Should I maybe just adjust my table by something or is there some new thing that, that's emerging that, that we're not aware of? Um, here's an example of mortality rates produced by age. Um, the red line, uh, I've only done the machine learning techniques, so glimnet there represents the, uh, well, the red line represents the experience, the raw experience. Um, the glimnet rates, this uh, green line, represents the lasso regression. Um, the gradient boosted trees by XGB, the second one or the third one, and then DL is a deep learning model there. And you can see they all produce, you know, on visually they produce reasonably accurate mortality rates compared to the experience. Um, slightly different behavior at the extremes, so some of the models look slightly differently in the younger ages. Where there's not a lot of data, and slightly differently at the, at the older ages. Um, it's a bit difficult to see, but the, the XGB and the, and the deep learning models both are less smooth than the GLM, uh, the Limnate models, because we, uh, we enforced smooth functions for, for, for the GLM. Um, the embedding layer, layer produced some less smooth results in the, in the deep learning model, and the XGB, by definition, is always bucketing observations. It's not a continuous uh, model, so there would always be discontinuities in the XGB or the gradient boosted tree models, so that's why you, you don't see such smooth curves there. And this is the thing that we kind of found and discovered based on this new technique of combining, um, combining the delay factors and the, and the, and the t- traditional um, actuarial modelling for, 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 uh, uh, in this model, the, the approach we did. What you see here is um, what's plotted is the proportion of claims reported in the first year by age. Okay? So it's kind of a rough estimate of how quickly the claims are reported. Um, and you see the actual, which is in red, which is the, the wobbly number, um, and then all the other models we fitted in this case. And what you can clearly see, there's a definite pattern by claims being reported quicker for younger people. Ah, uh, sorry, slower for younger people. Um, I, I found this quite surprising that even um, you know, if you look at 40 to 60, those claims are reported a lot slower than claims past 60. And I would, I would expect people between 14 and 60 would have dependents that would, you know, would need the money as opposed to people who are a lot older. Um, and the young, uh, for the young lives, that might be not that surprising. What you can see in the green line there is the traditional approaches. So you can clearly see the traditional approaches are not pro- properly modeling um, the delay that changes by age. Right, and our new approaches, both with the with the GLM or the LASSO or the other machine learning techniques, all um, clearly adjust for that and clearly follow that trend and, and are able to correctly predict the proportions of claims reported in different periods. So I, I found this quite interesting, in terms of the results. Um, what we've also done is various partial dependency plots. This is a, 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 the impact of age um, on, a, on, a, on a particular uh, sample of cases, just to show you more how, you, how, how that would look for a particular case, how the, how the, how the um, mortality rates would look. Um, and this shows you the impact of age over, over all, the, all the observations. So pretty, pretty good. The deep learning model slightly unsmooth because of the way we, were, uh, way we did the embedding. This is an interesting plot for uh, for uh, really understanding what's going on here, because what this is, uh, we took a sample of different model points in our data. We couldn't plot them all, and then we just varied age across across the, across the portfolio. And what you can see is that what the what these machine learning techniques are picking, or in this case the gradient boosted tree is picking up, is lots of tiny interactions with different variables inside the model. Um, you can see that the age shape actually changes depending on. Uh, or the, the policy you're using, and 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 that's that's the magic of this, these techniques that really can dig down into your data and really fit to 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 the to the uh, different age shapes and different substitute age. Your smokers have a different age shape. your males have a different age shape. Your your, your different rating classes have different age shapes, and and the model is picking this up. Um, Worth mentioning as well is that we, in all cases, we've produced a single model for all the different products and the different countries in this case. So we actually just have one model to model mortality in the UK, South Africa, CI as well, um, and different versions of CI as well, actually, as well, as well as joint lives. So this is not a traditional actual way, and but the machine learning techniques really allow us to Quickly explore many different products and and come up with a effectively almost individualized rating basis as you can see here in terms of the mortality curves. So key takeaways: um, we think the combined modeling technique actually improves accuracy and it's and it's useful. It actually simplifies a lot of things as well because now you don't have a separate R that's sitting on a spreadsheet that um, that you're messing around with the you know the, the the experience on the bottom left and the top right. Um, Um, And it links delay with other variables, so you can try to look at interactions between between the variables. On top of that, machine learning improves the accuracy of the results even further. Um, but also GLMs can be good, and especially this Lasso regression is really a, a really a nice uh, 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 way to, to to combine machine learning as well as have a little bit of explain, explainability um, in terms of the parameters of the model afterwards. Um, I have to say that Lasso actually in this case had a lot of variables in, so it's going to be quite difficult to explain it fully. But um, but you can you can show some factors for a for a for a, a concerned statutory actuary or a pricing actuary. Um, yeah, the, the other thing was that the GLMs were the model that took the longest to actually fit, so it was a lot of effort to do that. Um, and yeah, what I found is you need to be very careful when you're extrapolating the models. We were projecting forward in time on data that on, on a period that the model didn't train on, and we saw some odd, oddness, especially with the gradient and boosted tree, for example. Um, and suitable loss metrics is also important to look at, and you need to think about what's A versus E, and, and, and what's the Poisson error, and how you're going you're gonna to interpret those things. But um, my final conclusion, and, and, and our, our final conclusion, is that machine learning definitely has a place in mortality modeling, um, not only to you know, actually model mortality, but at least, at the very least, to explore the data and really understand what's happening in the data, and then, adv- and, and then make suitable business decisions of, of what you see in your models. So thanks for your time. There is a paper, so if I stuffed up the explanation, you can go and read it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks.
0: Yeah, thanks, Louis and Ronald, yeah. That was great and rather insightful. I have a couple of questions, but um, I'll open it up to the floor first, see if there are any questions or clarifications or just general comments.
1: Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, Just out of curiosity, I wanted to find out if you think um, similar similar methodologies could be applied to withdrawals as well, Um, and what kind of changes, like um, how you would kind of alter the
0: models to allow for those.
1: Um, I think yeah, definitely. I think you can use similar sort of exposure-based and incidence-based sort of models to model, I guess, lapses and withdrawals. Is that what you're referring to? And to the extent that it's, those are notified. In areas, it takes a long time to maybe process them or something like that. You could also apply a sort of an IBNR technique off of that. I haven't done the IBNR side on, on lapses before, but certainly modeling similar techniques on, on lapses. And again, the machine learning techniques uh, really explore your data a lot better and, and it would probably perform, I, mean, I think um, they would perform a lot better with such rich data. So your lapses or your withdrawals have a lot more factors affecting the outcome and also have a lot more events. So, so the data is so much more rich because you have. And instead of one per mole, you have one in 10 or, you know, one in, you know depending on your lapse rates, but maybe 10% lapse rates a year. Um, so you have a lot more data to play with and, and there's a lot more variables to find. Yeah.
2: I, I think it's exactly that. It's an easier problem in terms of the fact that your rates are higher, but it's harder because your lapse rates should be much more variable than mortality or morbidity rates. So I think it's a, a really good candidate for, for this type of modelling.
0: Um, I, th- I recall a session yesterday. Um, that David did, where I think they used a lesser regression on a lab study, where they also incorporated economic variables into the model. So, if you if you weren't there, try to pick up that presentation. It was also rather insightful. Any other comments? Right at the back. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I mean, we sort of started touching on it there, but just any findings on data volumes? You know, when. When do the ML methods start to outperform as your data volumes grow? When, like at what sort of level do you need, what sort of data volumes do you need to be able to apply you know, deep learning and other methods?
2: So that's a really interesting question. And I think what you often find machine learning methods um, bucketed into is they for big data. In my experience, not particularly in this project, but on other projects, you can have extremely good results with machine learning even on small data sets. Um, and it's more around how you go about specifying the machine learning model as opposed to um, the volume of data that makes a difference. I think something that we did show in this study is that um, on predicting RBNR, which is obviously um, a much smaller number of claims compared to the claims that would be predicted in the first development year, um, the machine learning model still performed, so that's one place in the study where you can get some idea. But I, I, I think that, together with the more general experience, is that it comes down to how you, how you specify the machine learning model, as opposed to say when n is bigger than five hundred, go for machine learning.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, just the one thing that you need to notice as your data shrinks, you need to really think about overfitting, and and obviously still still check for overfitting, and, and either by using cross-validation or or by uh, having a holdout sample. I often find cross-validation useful there because obviously with limited data, you don't want to throw away much for testing.
2: Maybe I can add one more thing. Um, in the past few weeks on Archive, which is um, where a lot of the machine learning papers get published, they've shown um, results on how effective deep neural networks can be, even on small data sets, and they show um, a theoretical connection to support vector machines. So if you're interested, I'll, I'll happily send you the link to that that study.
0: Any other questions? All right. Yeah, I mean, I was also going to touch on the data requirements, but then I suppose the open question is: is what what next? Is there any development on the model, the study?
1: Yeah, I think I think
0: for, in terms of the data, the other thing to note is in the
1: study we, we didn't we didn't use rich data. I mean, it would have been really great to know the. The uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of random variables. Um, the the policyholder income or or the or the or BMI. the or the BMI or the you know all the health ratings and you know what they answered on the question form and that's the kind of stuff we we, we are we are involved in. Um, obviously, we couldn't share all that kind of stuff here. And obviously, a reinsurer's data is somewhat. Um, administrative in nature, so a lot of it is sometimes limited. So exploring more fields using these techniques is obviously where the power lies, so it can quickly tell you where the you know what the important fields is if you have too many fields to, to look at. Um, and also, I think Ross, uh, Brian has some ideas in terms of how we're going to extend this work.
2: Yeah, I, I think one very interesting thing to do um, if you think about modeling mortality is that actuaries have always imposed smoothness as an important prior, um, whereas most machine learning methods don't necessarily cater for smooth. Um, effects. So it would be very interesting to work out how do you modify your loss function in such a way that it produces a penalty on rough um, results. That would be one interesting thing to consider. And then I think um, the problem of bias in machine learning models, um, as opposed to goodness of fit, is really interesting. um, And it's worth considering how one could examine bias over time. So in other words, the the correction that we applied works well on training data, how do you make sure that it works well as you start extrapolating these models? And then I think that that's really the third thing, something that Louis touched on quite a bit, is understanding how to extrapolate well with machine learning models is probably something that hasn't been studied in enough detail, and that's probably something that we should pay more attention to.
0: All right, thanks. All right, if there's no last minute questions, I shall let you go. I think it's the plenary session starts in about 20 minutes, so I'll see you all there. Once again. Thanks, guys.